The Canucks pick up a split against a pair of divisional rivals over the long weekend. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Strantz. Make sure you're also reading his work covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, to say that that was a tale of two games for the Canucks is probably a pretty massive understatement because that performance on Saturday against the Ducks, absolutely disastrous. One of the poorest performances if not the poorest performance they've had under Bruce Boudreaux no question about that I think it's up there the question is is it as bad as the Buffalo game from early in the season as bad as the Pittsburgh game after which JT Miller uh, was speechless when asked whether or not his teammates were buying in uh, or as bad as the Pittsburgh game that ended with the jersey on the ice and and created an environment where wholesale change occurred in, in Canucks leadership it was at that level in terms of how dispiriting the club's performance was, I thought. It was that kind of performance, and then they follow it up a couple of nights later against, you know, albeit uh, one of the uh, only teams in the Western Conference that has been consistently below them in the standings this year in the Seattle Kraken, but they follow it up with one of their most complete performances of the year. And I know they were yeah. down after 20 minutes in that game last night, but they controlled play, controlled the shot clock, controlled possession at even strengths for the entirety of that game and, well, and are easy, full value for the comfortable win against the Kraken. What would you say? Like, I'm, I'm trying to think, like the 4-0 victory over the Kings, I think that was Boudreaux's first or second game. Maybe that's up there. Um, you know, maybe maybe their performance in Anaheim, at the end of December, like toward the end of the of the win streak, um, those would be sort of my only the only games that stand out to me as being as complete as what Vancouver did to Seattle. And, and what I liked about it in particular, Jamie, is the game was going against them, right? Like Tyler Myers gets pickpocketed by Marcus Johansson. Johansson waits him out. Uh, really nice finish by Jared McCann. Just a great play to to attack against the grain after the Tyler Mott, you know, statement shift from the from the fourth line uh, to open the open the contest, and then they hit them with a shorthanded goal. So it's like things are going against them. The special teams are an issue again. Like all of that momentum that this team, you know, Bo Horvat and Tanner Pearson both talked about, like snowballing on this team, and instead of us seeing that same story again, right? What we did see was a group that just kept playing their game, kept grinding away five on five. They get a goal that I thought Chris Dreger should have had from Travis Hamanick, and then from there they sort of continue to take over the game. The way that they control play five on five, and I know it's easy to look at the Kraken and say, well, they're a bottom feeder, and they are, but they control play relatively well. Like, they're not... They're not much worse than the Canucks in terms no. of overall five-on-five form. In fact, they're they're a relatively even matchup, except for the fact that the Canucks have elite finishers and the Canucks have elite goaltending. And the Kraken, well, they certainly don't. But on form, that was a more dangerous game, a more difficult opponent for the Canucks than it would look like if you just checked the standings. And I thought the Canucks just put the boot in. I was really impressed. I really liked what I saw from Vancouver last and night. And one of the things that stood out to me in that game was, as you talked about, you know, they avoided having all the bad things snowball against them and letting the game get away from them. And 
I, I was doing the intermission with uh, with Riccio last night, and after the first intermission, we talked about okay, wanting to see the team come out with that real sense of urgency and that sense of desperation that was missing against Anaheim, mm-hmm. and that and that you knew the coaching staff was going to want to see from them. And what impressed me was so often when we think of a hockey team playing with that desperation, it's oh they're flying around and hitting everything that moves, or there was a big fight to get the team back into it and get the crowd going or whatever. And there wasn't that kind of one singular moment from the Canucks. I think it was just a recognition of, hey, we outplayed that team in the first period. If we just keep doing that, we're going to be just fine. We're going to get our chances to score. All we have to do is keep grinding, keep controlling play, and we'll be fine. And that's what they did, right? Rather than yep. there wasn't that one moment where you say, oh, wow, they're playing with a lot of heart now. It was just a very professional sense of, hey, guess what? We're playing better than this team tonight. We can be, we can easily be better than this team tonight. Let's just go out there and keep doing that. And I thought they did that really well. They did do that really well. I, and And I think the fact that Chris Dreger was really good, aside from the Hamannick goal, right, um, made that scoreline look more flattering to Seattle than it probably should have been. Vancouver was all over them. Their their defense, they need some speed on defense. They need some some high-end finishing talent up front, and they need someone who can stop pucks. Uh, the Kraken have a lot of work to do. <laughs> 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Again, 650-650. Matt and Ladner says, the last two games I went to, the Pittsburgh game and the Anaheim game. I feel like it's me. Yeah, Matt, done. Matt you, done. Wanna, you might want to stay away for a little bit there, Matt. If you're, if you're team playoffs, stay away. <laughs> if you're team tank, yeah. you know, become a season ticket holder. If you're team Shane Wright. Then, uh, then get get those season tickets. But <laughs> when there's been so much talk about, you know the the new front office for the Canucks trying to evaluate what this team is, and obviously that conversation is ongoing with fans and the media as well. And I think when there's back to back results that are so incredibly different, just you cannot get more different games in terms of how well the team played than the Anaheim and the Seattle game over the weekend. And when that happens consecutively, I think there's a temptation to kind of look at it and say, oh, what an enigma this team is, right? What a mystery that they can play like that against Anaheim and then immediately follow it up with a stellar performance like they had Seattle. What are we to make of this team? And people kind of throw up their hands. But I think when you look at those two performances in the context of the team season, the inconsistency that that is what the Canucks are, right? Like we know, we've seen enough let down performances from the Canucks and that Anaheim one that that stands out even in this season. But we know this team is going to lay an egg from time to time, right? We know there are going to be games where they come out and at the end of it we say, "Man, what was that? They just did not have it tonight." We've seen that over and over again, not just this year. Going back to last year, too. The flip side of it is we've seen plenty of very good performances from this team. And not just against bottom dwellers like Seattle. We've seen them match up with some of the better teams in the NHL as well and turn in really strong performances. So I don't think either of the results that we saw over the weekend should necessarily be a surprise. And I don't think either result should really confuse you too much as to what exactly this team is. I think a team that finds itself in the kind of lower middle of the NHL standings you're going to expect a certain amount of variance, a certain amount of inconsistency. And I I don't think at this stage of the season, now that we've played, we've seen 50-plus games from this team, we've seen a large body of work uh, under Bruce Boudreau as well, I don't think we have to overreact to every individual result, right? Like, their next game is Thursday against the Calgary Flames. We all know the Flames are on an absolute heater. I don't think basically anything that happens in that game should be a surprise, right? If the Canucks come out and hang with the Flames and do a really good job against one of the hottest teams in the league, yeah, we know this team has that upside. 
if they come out and lay a, an egg against a divisional rival, a, a Western Canadian rival in a big home game against a bunch of familiar faces, I don't think that should be a surprise either because we, we know they don't show up sometimes. So at a certain point, I think we just have to look at all the evidence in front of us and guess what? They're a team with upside. They're a team that's also extremely inconsistent. And when you look at it specifically in the context of this kind of long shot playoff race, I think we've seen enough to know that inconsistency isn't going away. And that inconsistency is, in my opinion, what is going to be what sinks them as they try to make this this long shot playoff race a reality. Well, also, you know, if you're taking a three-pointer, right, you might make it once, right? But the difference between you and Steph Curry, aside from, you know, the paycheck you take home, is that Steph Curry always makes it when it's open, right? The, the difference between being great and being Joe Schmo is not the ability to do something. It's the ability to do something consistent, consistently, to maintain a high level of performance, right? And and so, you know, we are 51 games into the season, and we've seen this Canucks team, you know, if you look at the whole body work, if you don't divorce uh, the Boudreaux era from the Green era, right? If you look at it as, as an entirety, you know, you're, you're seeing a middling five-on-five team propped up to be um, in the black by five-on-five goal differential as a result of elite, elite goaltending. Like, truly outrageous uh, save percentage goaltending. Number one in the NHL. Better than the New York Rangers, right? (laughs) Better than the Calgary Flames. Better than, you know, any team that employs a goaltender likely to be a Vezina nominee. Um, which, you know, Thatcher Demko is relatively likely to be one in the unlikely event that the Canucks actually do storm back and make the playoffs. I think he'd be a shoe in but uh, a lot of road to run for that to occur. Um, in terms of how that's differed, you know, with Boudreaux versus Travis Green, honestly, the difference is not insignificant and, and should be noted. Like, the Canucks were minus two. At 5-on-5 five five under Green in the first 25 games, which, by the way, that's like middle of the pack yes. at 5-on-5. Five five. That's not a disaster, but the special teams... That tells you how bad their special teams the were. special teams were cataclysmic. Um, you know, they're plus 7 under Boudreaux, which is a nice turnaround. It, it is a nice turnaround. Of course, the goaltending has been outrageous through both ends, and, you know, they are better. They are better right now at 5-on-5, five five. but the difference is not... Of the leap from being what the Calgary Flames were under Jeff Ward to being what the Calgary Flames are under Daryl Sutter, right? The difference is a little bit more modest than that, which is to take nothing away from the tremendous job that I think Bruce Boudreau has done here. Um, at spe- on special teams, the Canucks p- power play is trending in the wrong direction, right? Like they are f- fifth last in terms of the rate at which they're generating shots and shot attempts uh, since the since the middle of January, like over the last sixteen games. Um, in fact, their power play, which has looked so anemic, is actually being propped up by good finishing luck. And and granted, it's not all luck because the Canucks have really good finishing talent, but they are generating nothing five on four. And it's going to get worse unless this trend is arrested massively, significantly, and immediately. The Canucks' play on the power play is going to hurt them down the stretch. The penalty kill, still a huge problem. Still a huge problem. And in fact, although... In my view, and I heard Yannick Hansen on the radio yes, uh, last week talk about how, in his view, the Canucks were still giving up the same chances, um, f- uh, four on five, that they were uh, earlier in the year. And I think he's right in terms of the quality looks, how often they're getting seamed. Um, but 
they are spending like they're giving up less overall shots and and that does matter right there's less overall danger for the Canucks four on five but they're still getting ventilated punctured on far too regular basis and while they're no longer historically bad on the penalty kill or at least they haven't been historically bad on the penalty kill in Boudreaux's tenure um they're still that's still a huge problem a still a still a massive hole so what does that leave you with it leaves you with a team that's Good but not great five-on-five that consistently across coaches has had a special teams issue that's, you know, nothing short of cataclysmic, right? Crushes you. And elite goaltending. And I don't know why there's this rush in this market now. Like, the Canucks lose a game and there's this rush to be like, that's it, I've seen enough, blow it up. And then they win and it's like, actually, you owe this room the chance to see how far they can take this. And I'm here to tell you that neither is the right approach. (laughs) <laughs> Neither is the right approach. This organization made changes to stop living day to day, right? You can't be reacting to samples this small. And if this organization is reacting to samples that small, it's a huge, huge issue. You need 51 games into a season, um, you know, 26, 27 games into a new head coach. You need to know who you are. You need to know who you are. And I think we do know who the Canucks are, right? We do. They are, you know, a fringe playoff team at their best. At their best. They're a team capable of reeling off win streaks, a team capable of playing games the way they did on Monday, but not a team that's capable of doing that on a consistent enough basis. Uh, They're a team that can get pushed around the way that the Anaheim Ducks push them around. And they're hugely flawed in in a variety of areas, which include lacking the personnel to fix their special teams over multiple coaching staffs, right? Uh, both of whom, by the way, I, I rate as good, like average or better uh, for me. And I know this market currently disagrees about the former coach, Travis <laughs> Green, but I rate Travis Green at least an average NHL coach. I think Boudreaux's better than that. And neither of them were able to fix special teams. More than that, neither of them had the confidence to really play high event hockey with this lineup. Both have instead played a lot of possum, have made conservative choices, have prioritized defensive shutdown players to try and win games, grind out points while getting throttled on the shot clock. Like that's how both coaches have have made tactical and deployment choices throughout the season. I don't see what I I don't understand what more we need to see for this organization to make a decision one way or another and and you know the Fact is, is that when you hear Rutherford speak and he has the Rorschach test element, right, where there's enough there, like if you really want to hear that this organization believes this team can make the playoffs, well, he says if you win, if you get in, you can win. And he says, you you know, you got to give the players a lot of credit and the coaching staff a lot of credit for how they've battled back to give themselves a chance. So you take that and you say, hey, Rutherford yep. believes in this team. But he's also saying we need cap space, we need draft picks, um, you know, we need work, we're a few years away, um, we're going to have, uh, be an attractive landing spot for NCAA and European free agents because we're going to have jobs on the roster. Uh, our identity is we have a goalie who wins us games. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, you know, if you want to be of the mind that this team needs to blow it up, Rutherford's left you enough breadcrumbs that you can pick those up and, and say that he agrees with you too. Um to me, to me, that all smacks of a front office that's biding their time, keeping their options open, and and here's my one concern. 
maybe leading a horse to water a little bit in terms of managing up the way that Rutherford talked about doing when he was first introduced, right? Uh, maybe managing up to um, an ownership group that certainly had a hand in the construction of this roster and, and maybe does want to see um, exactly how it plays out, even though I think we know pretty well who they are, what they are, and what needs to come next. Yeah, and Mayday texted in, last night was great, but I still don't know the identity of this Canucks team. And I think what I'm trying to get at is the inconsistency, that is part of the identity, right? That is a major part of the identity of this team and something that, as it's currently constructed, you know, there should be no expectation that that's going away. That inconsistency is going to continue. And, you know, to your overall point, Drancer, I think sometimes we get caught in, okay, well, there's been improvement under Boudreaux, so we should let we should wait and see how much more improvement there can be. But it, it's not just about, it's not a binary thing, right? Have they improved or have they not improved under Boudreaux? We all know they have. They, they absolutely have, and that you can see that in the record. You can see that in the underlying numbers. It's just about how big a jump have they taken. And, and to your point, it's been, you know, a significant improvement, but not something that all of a sudden, I think, changes the course of the future of this roster. And I mean, we'll wait and see if the, if the new front office agrees with that assessment, but that's what it comes down to to me is yes, improvement, real improvement, significant improvement, but not something where all of a sudden you look at it and say, you know what? We just need to keep this group together and tinker around the fringes to get to where we're going. And just on your last point, this unsigned text comes in and says, fundamentally, how much is Francesco <laughs> Aquilini holding them back from resetting and selling? And I mean, the answer to that is, you know, You'd have to ask Francesco Aquilini or Jim Rutherford in a, in a candid moment. But I, I understand why that concern still exists for Canucks fans. It has to. Yeah. It has to. Uh, the fact is, is that organizations have their own momentum, regardless of who is in key leadership or, or management roles, right? We've seen this time and time again across nations, governments, small businesses, your own workplace, right? Um the Canucks have restored confidence with the changes that they've made to the front office. But I do think there's a, still a, a test that this organization has to pass in action beyond just word, right? Indeed, not, not, not just in terms of what, what's said. And for me, that test is beginning to operate in a way where every move that this club makes seems to be in service of a vision that makes sense. It makes sense, passes a sort of baseline for common sense, and and is evident. Like, it is evident. Um, At the end of the day, doing things that help you win isn't complicated. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand the Tampa Bay Lightning's moves. You know what I mean? Sometimes you might have to be like, oh, well, you know, the reason that they traded a first for Barkley Gaudreau was that um, he's locked up also next season and they've got a big cap crunch looming. So that's actually a really good deal, even though... You know, it looks like they paid a lot. Uh, that was a perfect fit for them. Like, maybe maybe it needs a little bit of unpacking. But the fact is, is that what the really good organizations do doesn't require a microscope to understand or see. And it doesn't require a bunch of, you know, well, you, you, you know, non-hockey people don't understand the importance of, you know, that deterrent on the, like, it doesn't need that. It doesn't need that. You find players who fit your team better than they fit other teams. And and it doesn't always have to be like an analytics darling. Like a good example is Eric Goodbranson. Eric Goodbranson and Nikita Zadorov are both guys who 
you know, in, in other organizations, like what we saw with Good Branson in, in Pittsburgh, for example, what we saw with Zadorov in Colorado, on, on sort of skating teams, like up-tempo teams, they were kind of like poor fits. But for the way that Daryl Sutter wants to play, they're a perfect third pair, right? They, they actually are more than the sum of their parts for the way that that organization does business. You know, you want to understand the Mark Donk effect in Pittsburgh. It's the same thing. Find players who play and fit a template of how you want to play. And then and then siphon everything you do through that. Who you draft. Who you target in free agency. The college guys you sign. Like, it's it's about basic discipline and sticking to a plan. We need to see this organization actually do that once they start making moves. Because, again... To this point, Rutherford has made a pretty conservative start, right? He has broken the mold in terms of the identity of the people with whom he's staffed his front office, but he has been oddly placid in terms of the lack of trade activity to this point, right? This has been a very measured start for the Canucks front office. Um, I don't think measured is going to get it done considering the enormity of the task at hand. And I'm just very curious to see if once the dominoes begin to fall, right, once once the puzzle pieces begin to, to fit together, um, does this organization function in a way that we will see is new or not or not? Well, it's going to be fascinating when the moves actually start to happen. And there's still an expectation, and I share this expectation, that because of Jim Rutherford's track record as somebody who doesn't like to sit still, that we will see moves of some sort of significance that move the needle in one direction or another before the trade deadline. But you're right that we have spent a lot of time kind of parsing what Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin and others have had to say about the direction of this organization. But words are one thing, and we're going to have a completely different idea of of and a completely different understanding of what the direction of this team is once those move yeah, actually once start the to fireworks happen. right when we're we're kind of trying to read between the lines to a certain extent and guess and get inside the mind of Jim Rutherford but eventually he's going to show us eventually he's going to lay his cards on the table to a certain extent we'll say oh okay here's what's going to happen and then the really interesting debates can start happening <laughs> at that at some point then uh Naples text in this is still Jim Benning's team it's still the team we all hated in November they aren't as bad as they showed but still not good enough and Saskatchewan Joe says improvement sounds like a moral victory this roster simply can't hang with playoff teams when will we see some actual changes and i think that captures that captures the mood of a lot of I think that captures fans. the middle ground, though, because there are still those holding out hope, right, who believed in the last regime, right, who are holding out hope that, in fact, the coaching change has, sol- coaching change has solved all that ails this club, right? And then there are, is another extreme, which are people who think that this team, in, in fact, does need to do a more dramatic right. teardown, um, which, you know, includes a core group that's maybe more limited than I might include, right? Like, I might include Bo Horvat and Brock Besser, Right. And, and someone else might say, no, it's really just Pedersen, Hughes and Demko. Everything else must go. What, what have you. But I think that mood that we have seen enough. Right. They're better than they were in the first 25 games. They are improving, but it's still not enough. I do think that captures sort of a, a middle majority, uh, a forming majority of Canucks fans, particularly after the club cooled off once the calendar flipped to 2022. And of course, they have only won eight of their last uh, 18 games. 
Uh, it's Canucks Hour here, Sportsnet 650. As a reminder, make sure you subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review as well. You can keep your text coming in, 650-650 to be Dunbar Lumber text line. Lots more to talk about on the other side, including... The man of the hour, Yuho Lamico and his line mates. What does their recent play mean for the future, for their future with the Canucks, for the future of the club as well? We'll get into that and a whole lot more. It is Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here with you for another half hour. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, we didn't need the uh, the prompt from the text message inbox to talk about this, but this unsigned text comes in. What do you think about Lamico? Two apples last night. Kids looking like a beast. He's the man of the hour. Yuho Lamico, a couple of primary assists from uh, from 99's office behind the net. Had another had a scoring chance himself. Had just an incredible cross ice tape to tape pass yeah, instead of beautiful. Tyler Mott. But that was the moment where it became like the Yuho Lamico game, where it's like, what is going on? No, no, who, who inhabited his body here? This all is of not. A this is not the Yuho Lamico game. I worked a game in Ottawa when I was with the Florida Panthers. It was Yuho Lamico's eighth or ninth game in the NHL, and he scored four goals. In an NHL game. Is that true? That is true. I have a photo of him holding four pucks. <laughs> so the Yuho Lamico, like, if you think you saw That's the ceiling amazing. of Yuho Lamico, I can promise you I've seen I've seen more. I've seen a four-goal Yuho game. So what you're saying is there's the best is yet to come with the Canucks <laughs> and Yuho Lamico. We don't even we're just scratching the surface of Yuho Lamico's offensive potential here. So Yuho Lamico was described as a beast in that text message, right? And the yep. thing about Yuho that I like is that no matter what, he plays the game like he's been kept in a cage until puck drop being fed raw meat. And that work rate is always there. It's always been there. He's always been an honest player in terms of bringing a competitive edge and, and just being like a large gentleman who mixes it up, right? Like that is what he does. And he does it really well. Now, what's prevented Yuho Lamico from being a everyday NHL player to this point in his career, although he seems to be carving that niche out rather rapidly with the Canucks, is the puck just isn't on his stick very much. Even even if he's making nice passes, you don't often see him carry the puck. He had one sequence through the neutral zone last night, and I noted it because it was the type of play that he hasn't made a ton of over the course of his career, and I've seen this guy play, like, more NHL games live than probably anybody, right? Having worked for his previous organization, like, I worked with him for his first 100-plus games. I've now covered his last, what, 40 in Vancouver. Um, He had the sequence, and he sort of tried to put the puck through and into space, and Mark Giordano got in front of him, got body position. The crowd called a penalty. It was definitely not a penalty. (laughs) And, um separate him from the puck and I noted it because it was sort of unique he just doesn't carry the puck a lot he just doesn't play with the puck a lot I think he's got pretty good skills 
in terms of his shot, in terms of his hand-eye, you'll notice him bat pucks out of midair sometimes and, and get, you know, if not chances, then chances at chances or, or in fact, chances um, at the net front. I think he's a pretty good passer. I think it's the puck skills, and, and what I mean by that is the ability to carry and make plays with the puck. And he doesn't have to be dynamic. He just has to be average. And if he can be average at that, he could be a really good player. The, the growth that he's shown in the face-off circle is a huge development. That really adds a quiver to his arsenal. Um, the work rate and the size will always keep him employed on an NHL roster, I think, or at least on the fringes of an NHL well, especially roster. Especially when you couple it with good face-off work. If that's consistent yeah. and that's a thing going forward, then then, then there's something there. But if he can add the puck skills element, then then you're really cooking with oil. Then you're looking at, you know, a a guy who has a chance to be like a Vern Fiddler type, you know, uh, five-year career as, as a really good fourth-line center. Um, that's that's the challenge for him is, is can he graft some additional puck skills in? We saw some flashes of it last night, but again, it was skills that I know he has, which is the ability to make a sharp pass, the ability to shoot, the good hand-eye. Uh, what what I want to see is him carry the puck, maintain possession, um, have have some more of those heavy shifts that aren't just like against the grain, you know what I mean? Like forecheck, right. t- uh, tic-tac-toe in. Um, he, can, he can participate ably in those, and that Mott line is constructed specifically to score in that manner, uh, with really only Matthew Highmore spending a lot of time, in my opinion, of those three carrying ever. Um, but, but that's the side of his game that if that comes along and, and, you know, again, there were some signs of it. He he had a controlled entry (laughs) last night. I mean, maybe, maybe if that part of his game can develop, uh, there'd be something there. He, he's certainly a really interesting player, a great character. And again, full value, honest workmanlike player. Uh, every time he puts the jersey on, and, and you can't help but like that. And Lamico really got his turn in the spotlight last night, but that line obviously has been a major story for the Canucks over the last couple of months as, as Bruce Boudreaux has kind of become infatuated with them, and for good reason, because they're doing, you know, as he said last night, they're doing everything he asks them to do every time he sends them out there. Started the game with that line last night, gets rewarded with a Tyler Mott goal 11 seconds in. And I think we can all acknowledge how much fun that line has been to watch, how much fun it has been for fans to root for them. And, you know, you, you can just tell hearing from the rest of the players on the team, right? They they love seeing all of those guys have this success. I think the conversation kind of naturally turns to, okay, well, what does this mean for those players and for the Canucks? Is there all of a sudden, are these players more significant to the future of the team than we might have thought coming into the season? And obviously, you know, all three are free agents of some variety. Tyler Mott's a UFA, uh, Highmore and Lamico are RFAs at the end of the season. And I think a lot of people who would have been happy seeing, you know, the Canucks sell on Mott or seeing them even sell on Highmore or Lamico at some point are now maybe changing their tune. And this uh, this unsigned text comes in and says, keep that fourth line together. They set the identity somewhat for this team, whereas no one else is doing anything when they're needed. And I understand that perspective, right? Because, hey, there has been such a struggle for the Canucks to find bottom six, fourth-line players who check both boxes of being, you know, effective and affordable, right? That has been such, so hard to come by for this team over the last number of years. Now they have it, and I understand the reluctance to move on from that. But I also look at this line as kind of proof of concept for why the Canucks should potentially sell high on Tyler Mott. 
you should have confidence in your ability to go find players that can contribute on your fourth line, right? And the Canucks have done that. The Canucks have found Yuho Lamico, Matthew Highmore, and Tyler Mott. None of them were highly regarded players with high expectations when they arrived in Vancouver, but they've ended up being a really effective bottom six group. And to me, now's not the time to become infatuated with the group, right? And say, oh, we have to hold on to them now that we have them here. If you've built up their value to the point where you can get a good asset in return for a guy like Tyler Mott, I still say you do that and you have confidence in yourself. You bet on yourself to go find the next Tyler Mott to replace him. I, I, they're a great story. They're playing very well, but I don't think you can fall in love and avoid the opportunity to make you know a value deal that helps you in the future just because they're having a nice season right now. Well, you also might have that guy in-house in, in- Will Will Lockwood, right? Not to mention, you might have that guy in house in Matthew Highmore. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I understand that argument, but I do think, you know, the the texter. Will you read the text again that you just read? Yeah. Uh, excuse me. It was keep that fourth line together. They set the identity for this team, whereas no one else. And he says in brackets, Horvat is doing anything when they're oh, needed. The Horvat hate. I have no yep. time for that. I just want to. I just want to note that's my. That's going to be my new one. If that continues for another week, that's going to. He's going to be my new Pedersen. We got to get you and Vic together. Yeah. <laughs> the so the idea of them setting an identity, right? The way that I'd look at it is not even, not just that they're setting an identity night to night for this team, and certainly that statement opening shift, that opening eleven seconds last night um, was a was a nice calling card for that line, like a signature moment. For that line doing just that. But I would frame it like this. They set a template, right? They set a template for how this team could play once you graft that type of speed onto the entire roster, right? That's what Boudreaux's system being played with speedy wingers and a big center who can win some draws might look like. And and what dividends could be paid off in the event you could have more skilled players doing that playing that type of game higher up the lineup, right? I mean, that's the that's the sort of question that I have, or the or the way that I'd frame what that line has done. They've they've almost they're almost like a, a, a low grade proof of concept for Rutherford's vision of a speedy team. And considering that, considering the fact that this club has you know massive needs everywhere else, um. Does it make sense to try and retain the one part of the team that looks the way you want it to look, right? Just so that at least that's sort of buttoned up. And and you've seen Rutherford do this. You've seen him sign Brandon Tanev to, to major deals. You've seen him, you know, a Pittsburgh team roll with like a Ashton Reese, Bluger, Tanev fourth line that played us a lot and is sort of a signature fourth line and chips in offensively and plays some matchup minutes. Um, You've seen Rutherford teams employ this type of group in in a manner similar to how Boudreaux is employing this fourth line right now. Uh, Do you mess with part of your roster that matches your plan, even if it is a low-grade part of your roster? I I think if it can be done affordably, and granted, Mott's UFA. That's the question for me, right? Right. Mott's UFA, Lamico and Highmore are RFAs with arbitration rights. So Lamico's hot scoring rate, for example, does make his case a little more interesting. Um, Highmore has low scoring rates, but really good underlying numbers. That's a tougher case to make at arbitration. Highmore is an easy keep, lock up, 
maybe maybe gamble on two three years. Maybe there's a chance he has some middle six upside. I'd I'd be willing to make that bet at the right price. Something like you know two or three years at at one one two. I think there's a chance you get dividends out of that. Of course, there's a chance he's just replacement level and and you get dinged a little bit. But so long as you keep it at the line where you can roughly bury it, I, I don't think there's too too much of a risk there. Uh, that's a move. I that's a that's an option I'd consider. Lamico. Same thing. I, I think you, if you think that he can add puck skills to his game, if you think that there's more ceiling in that area especially, then I think you make that gamble. If you're skeptical about it, you maybe do a one-year show me. And then Mott is the is the complicated one. And I think with Mott in particular, it's complicated because of the upward pressure that bad contracts create for your group, right? How do you justify, considering Mott's production, paying him less than Jason Dickinson? in negotiations like how do you well this guy makes 265 and i've outscored him and i play more than him and i regularly am top line minutes when we're holding a lead late and he's not um like there's a upward pressure that's created by having inefficient deals on your books the mott dynamic is fascinating to me as a result yeah and with mott then the dickinson comparison as you said it's not just the scoring it's there's there's one player in that pair who the coach obviously trusts a lot more and it's Tyler Mott because he plays way more than Jason Dickinson now and it's a good point and that's the difference the key difference to me why I'm not saying they should go out and try to sell Lamico and Highmore because they are RFAs and I think there are chances there to sign deals that can be really team friendly and provide value to the Canucks but with Tyler with Tyler Mott not just because he's a UFA, but as you said, specifically because of how the negotiation dynamics with the Canucks would be. I just don't know if you're going to be able to get him at a number where it makes sense. And I think if you do kind of, okay, hey, we, we're going to make it a priority to uh, lock up Tyler Mott and we're willing to maybe overpay a little bit because we like what he brings. I think you're falling into some of the traps of the past, right? Where you're overpaying for guys who are ultimately bottom of the roster players or bottom half at least of the roster players as effective as they might be in that role. And I just, when I look at how much the Canucks need to carve out cap flexibility elsewhere in the lineup, you know, whether it's on the blue line, whether it's in some of their middle six forwards, I don't know if they can take that risk and pay that kind of premium for Tyler Mott. So if Highmore and Lamico, yeah, no problem. Hey, they're RFAs. I think that can absolutely work for the Canucks. And you can see what you have there going into next season and beyond. With Mott, I just think the price tag is going to be too steep to make it make sense. And another way of looking at it is you don't have to give up. You don't have to move on from that line as a unit, right? Yeah, Mott is kind of the – he's the longest tenured member of the organization. He's kind of has – he has the longest track record of uh, NHL success with the Canucks of those players. But if you decide to move on from Mott, you still have Lamico and Highmore. As you said, you might have a ready-made replacement in Will Lockwood to come in and fill a very similar role – with that line, you still have the makings of a very effective fourth line, potentially, even if you do decide to trade Tyler Mott at the deadline and get some value out of that. Well, and so I think you're right, but I think the way we need to understand this too, right, is for 10 years, dating back across management groups and eras, right, the deadline has been one of disappointment, right? Luongo pulled off the ice, not traded. Kessler deal can't be consummated at the deadline. Questions in the industry about whether or not the Canucks were even permitted to consider trading him. Um, Hamhuis, Verbata, right? <laughs> on and on down the list. This team has n- very rarely, with the Burroughs and the Hansen deals aside, 
monetized properly at the deadline for, for a decade. And it has killed them. It has absolutely killed them. Like, if you want to understand the LA Kings and why the LA Kings rebuild has already passed the Canucks, right? They kept Quick. They kept Kopitar. They kept Doughty. And they kept Dustin Brown. So it's not like they, you know, completely detonated their club. But they still did. Muzzin went out for Sean Dursey, uh, an, another pick, Grundstrom. Tanner Pearson went out um, for Carl Hagelin, who became something else. They then sold Carl Hagelin. Um, Tyler Toffoli went out for a second and Tyler Madden. Uh, Alec Martinez went out for for um, a bunch of assets. They, they monetized Oscar Fantenberg. They got a fourth-round pick for Oscar Fantenberg. Come on! On and on down the list, they they spent two and a half years. Jeff Carter, second and a third to Pittsburgh. They monetizing everything that wasn't a core, core piece. And not only did they get a ton of assets and a really promising young defenseman in Jersey and a ton of other draft picks that may or may not pan out in the years to come, but they also they also cleared the $25, 30000000 in cap space from avoiding... Pearson's next deal, to Foley's next deal, which ended up being super valuable, but you couldn't have anticipated that at the time. Um, the Muzzin deal, the Martinez deal. On you know, go down the list. Twenty-five plus million in cap space saved because you made those deals, and then you can get Victor Arvidsson for a song. Then you can sign Philip Deneau and have one of the most formidable two-way one-two punches uh, down the center uh, ice position. And they have more cap space. I don't know if you saw that they were linked to Chikorin in some rumors over the weekend. And it's like, of course, like the Kings have such a massive bastion of young talent and picks that they're going to be able to outbid you for any unique player that comes around and not just the Canucks, but just about everyone in the league, right? It's like the Rangers and them have buying power for days. What do they have in common? Multiple years being disciplined, building up their weaponry, right? So with Mott, right? The key thing for me, is you just have to act decisively. I'm not a I'm not dogmatic on this. I think Tyler Mott is great as a, as a person, as a player. I like him a ton. I think it tells you a lot that every coach he has can't resist playing him when the game is on the line, right? Like when the game is on the line, chips are down, you're holding a lead, it's white knuckle time. Tyler Mott's coming over the boards time and time again across different coaches for this organization. That tells you everything you need to know about who this player is. He's a quality person, a quality player, and if you keep him in the organization you're at, at the right term, you're not going to hear a lick of criticism from me. But if you do not have that deal in hand and signed, ink drying, by March 21st, he must be dealt with. Period. Period. I don't care which route. I don't have a huge preference. I think that comes down to a hockey decision made by people who know more about the game than me. But you have to, have to be decisive in one direction or another um, because that's what every other organization in hockey does and those are the teams you're competing against. You cannot continue to be this remarkable, wasteful organization up here that lives on an island um, and never gets anywhere, just runs in place on a treadmill. Join the race. Join the race. Do, do, do what's obvious for once. Come on. A uh, few more minutes here left in the show, and I wanted to get to a couple texts that came in. Some of the other big news that came out of that game last night, or the interesting news at least, and Emily texts in, curious about what you think about Pedersen admitting his wrist injury was still bothering him to beginning of the year. Pablo texts in to ask about that as well. And I mean, first, we should just mention... Vindicated. Pedersen has been playing incredibly well. I feel for vindicated. over a month now, right? <laughs> and hey, like, 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to spend the last five minutes when, just patting when, ourselves on the back here. Yeah. But I've been very consistent <laughs> on air as well. Elias Pettersson is the least of the Canucks' problems, and he'll be just fine. I mean, we are seeing that in a big, big way over the last fifteen games or so. He has been simply fantastic, and. Look, my, my leading scorer from here on out take too is aging go. real nice. Real nice. I'm gonna cash that out. I wish I'd bet I wish I'd bet it somewhere so I could cash it out at a at a high return. And I think the thing about the wrist comment from Elias Pedersen is you know, obviously it's always so hard to say exactly how much something like that contributes to a decline in performance, how long it contributes, all of that. But for me, it just helps it helps make sense of what happened with Elias Pedersen in the first half of the season or the first however many games of the season because I was never worried long-term about him, but it was confusing, right? There was cert- It was certainly odd that he was playing so far below the standard we expected from him. So for me, I'm not surprised at all that he has turned things around like he has, that he's been their best forward now for, uh, for a long stretch of games here, in my opinion. I know some people will still say JT Miller, but for me it's been Elias Pettersson. And that what the wrist comment really does is just kind of answer a lingering question. Okay, what what exactly was going on? And it was kind of good to have at least one piece of information that helps you kind of make sense and put in context what we saw from Elias Pettersson early in the year. Well, yeah, for sure. I, I So I asked the question, right? And I asked the question framed as, you know, did it take you a bit to remember how hard you had to work to play, to be effective playing your game? That was sort of the way that I framed it. And Pedersen kind of didn't answer that specifically. I think he acknowledged that that was part of it, but then went on to a wider discussion of where specifically he felt he'd struggled and 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 was very conscious of not making headlines, right? And mentioned it directly. I don't yeah, want to make this headlines. is going to create headlines. He always says that to me. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but the the fact is is that i appreciated that it wasn't an excuse right this was not something he leaned on uh this was not something that he discussed when it mattered when it was relevant it was something that he discussed on reflection in talking about what it was like to work his way through a portion of the season and a portion of his career in which you'd watch him play and it almost had no relationship with anything you'd seen previously, right? You watched it and you couldn't believe your eyes. Now, I'm not surprised that Pedersen's skill game has returned and that he's looking the way, um, you know, that he has throughout, that he's willful, assertive, imperious, the way that he is at his best, efficient. Um, But I did, I, I do think the extent to which some of the struggles were based off of a maturing player dealing with an injury, which he'd never done before, but also growing up in this league, which is not, you know, we talk about development not being a linear process and then we see it unfold and we're like, wait, this should be a linear process. Um, I think that the pressures that came with the contract, I think that the pressures that came with coming in and being the reason, like the reason that the team was underperforming. He was a big part of that. And I think taking that on while you're not at your best, while you're working through the mental challenge of coming back from an injury, while you're working through the new pressures that come with being the highest paid forward on a team for the first time, um, I do think that all combined to spitball against him and and create a, a really tough dynamic that, as he admitted, 
it took me longer than I wanted. And and I thought also, I want to note this too. I thought also that while he mentioned the wrist, it took longer than I wanted was for me him taking responsibility for what this season has looked like to this point. I suspect he'll continue to be this club's leading scorer the rest of the way. I'd like to see him play more. I'd like to see him play more minutes. I'd like to see him play with Miller and Brock again. Um, I'd like to uh, see what he can do and how he can finish this season and how it might change the way we think about and talk about the club this offseason should he finish the last 30 games as strong as he's looked the last 17 it says here that that's going to happen. Yeah. The, for me, the I don't want to say the Elias Patterson conversation is over, but it's it's certainly trending in that direction because he's done everything you want from him over these last this last stretch of 17 or 18 games. He has been the player you expect to see. And as you said, if it ends like that, like we've seen over that over that last stretch, then I think there's no reason to have full not to have full confidence in Elias Pettersson going forward. Just quickly before we get out, uh, we had some textures bring this up in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line drancer. So I think you had a little bit of a slip of the tongue when you were talking about the Yuho Lamico game. It was four assists, not four goals. Really? Yuho Lamico, yes. Oh, okay. I so that was a mistake. That was yeah. So I, I, remember I believe that he wrong. was ac- he was actually goalless. In that ah, season, four assists. Yes, but he he had, he played forty games without scoring a goal in that season. But he had Got four it. assists against Ottawa. Okay, so cool. he's the he's the playmaker, just like we saw last you know, night. You know, the memory memory is a tricky thing sometimes. I don't think it, it is. Was, it, honestly, that was not a slip of the tongue, Jamie. Fair I, enough. <laughs> I legitimately remembered it wrong, which is which is interesting because it's a difference between looking something up right and being like this even happened and being like I remember that. You know, I had a confidence to it that I wouldn't usually had I not been in the building and working the game and if I didn't have a photo of Yuho Lamico holding a stack of four pucks in my phone. <laughs> so there you go. We set the record straight. It was four assists for Yuho Lamico with the Florida Panthers against the Ottawa Senators. Errors and omissions. There you uh, go. Yeah, you got to get it. Got to get it covered. Hate up. it. <laughs> hate All right. Wrong. That's going to do it for us. We're back tomorrow at noon. The People's Show. Randy Janda and myself filling in for Bick. That's coming up next. You've got it on the home of the Canucks. Sportsnet 650.